So I'm sure that you faced this before, but I wanted to talk because I'm facing something at work mm-hmm. right now that that is just infuriating to me, as you can mm-hmm. tell by my voice. This is my infuriated voice. Barely keeping your cool over there. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's a guy who works around my department who does nothing mm-hmm. and whose job affects everybody. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I, I don't think I would mind if his job didn't affect anybody, mm-hmm. right? It's like... Um, Oh, what's his name on The Office? The guy who was fired in in Office Space. He was fired like years ago, but he keeps showing up to work, mm-hmm. and they steal his stapler. Mm-hmm. Why was is that the Stanley? guy with the glasses? Mm-hmm. I don't know what his name was, but it's like that. Like I, I would like to have one of those guys in our office. Like I think he's he was fired and keeps showing up, mm-hmm. and he sits there all day. Mm-hmm. That's fine with me. But this guy's over the money. Mm-hmm. So, like, reimbursements, like, if you go on a trip, which I did, he will then reimburse you, you know, the cost of the trip. Mm-hmm. And this guy does not do it. And not just with me. He historically does not do this. Mm-hmm. To the point that people in my office I'll openly, I'd openly acknowledge it and workarounds are having to be created just so nothing goes to him. The man whose job it is. Mm-hmm. We now need to inconvenience like four other people just to get something done because he literally will not mm-hmm. will will not do his job. Right. And my simple question after w- me and, and my boss dropped in on him one day just to be like, what's up? Like I, I also I wrote him a super long email trying to be nice and put my question about the reimbursement at the end of the email. Mm-hmm. He gave me a one word response to, to the first sentence of my email. Clearly he didn't read beyond <laughs> the first, like this is a guy who's actively like openly daring you to call him out on uh-huh. not doing his job. It's, it's ridiculous. Right. And yet he will not be fired. He, he's not in danger of losing his job mm-hmm. from what I can tell. And he's not interested in changing. It's like, how do you how do you get into an institution and be so entrenched that regardless of what you do, no one's getting you out? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, does he have blackmail pictures on everyone <laughs> above him? Or like how I think it goes in institutions and modern day businesses. It's just really hard to get someone out. It's a lot of work and rehiring and, you know, background checks. And there's no guarantee that the next person's going to be definitively better. And I think that he's gone to such a place, like he's over the finances, that he's like a director or whatever. Right. You know, and so it's like you've you've now have achieved the level of being able to not do anything and keep your job. Mm-hmm. When do I get that level? How do I, how do I ascend? But, but the other, the other question is, and the catch 22 of it is, I don't ever want to be that person. Right. Or do you want to be that person? I, I think see it I in kind your eye of him, that person. So you, but, 
But do you inconvenience others in your... No, and I do... My problem is that I do my work when I have it. I just don't have any work. Or there's a lot of times where I don't have any work. Yeah, you can't control that. No, I'm talking about the people who... Yeah. Have you encountered those in your job? The entrenched anchor? I mean, somewhat. Not to that degree, of course. But... I mean, not that I can think of in recent memory. I'm working with somebody else, and there's a story that I was told, multiple stories, of this man, like, snoring from his office, mm-hmm. where people can hear him, like, <laughs> offices away. Uh-huh. And just, apparently, a few weeks ago, at an office meeting, he fell asleep in the office meeting, was called on by the director, by his boss, mm-hmm. and literally his answer was, I'm I'm sorry I fell asleep. I can't I can't answer that. Like I don't know how to answer it. See, I had a moment last week where I'm just tired all the time for some reason. And we have these monthly meetings that I go to and I was sitting and they're so boring and they're like I've been going to these meetings for over 2 years now and every single meeting is just a group of people scanning over the different projects that our department has and getting updates on them. You and, should, and you we've should been doing that for two years. Start putting in some fake projects. Right. Be like uh, Hitler Memorial. Yeah. Hey, how's this, uh, <laughs> how's this Hitler Memorial coming along? Yeah. And the list hasn't changed, right? It's, it's, it's pretty much been the same and we're still up until this point trying to figure out what should and should not be on the list two years later. Anyways, it's really super boring. How's the Hitler Memorial? On top of that, I'm super, I'm really tired to begin with. And so a lot of times I'll find myself like nodding, like this is a meeting of like 12 to 15 people max. And I'm finding myself nodding off in the middle of the meeting. And like last week we're in the middle of this meeting and, and all of a sudden I just, I'm all of a sudden I wake up. You fell off your chair. And I'm like this, I just go. (laughs) And I like, you startled. I, I fell asleep. Or I like nodded off like mid going to adjust my glasses. <laughs> and all I could think of was like, how long was I just sitting in there in the meeting like this? <laughs> with my finger like two inches from my glasses. Just like. <laughs> and what, did anybody see me? He's deep in thought. You know, you you are set up for a perfect office space scenario. Like I could see you getting really highly promoted coming up. Mm hmm. By falling asleep in that in that gesture and somebody either mistaking you or just being like, no, there's a guy who knows enough to be bored in these meetings. He needs to be upper management because yeah. he he's on all these other people who are actively engaged in this dumb, stupid project. Mm-hmm. They they're happy where they are. We need that guy. Yeah, but I'm kind of of the mindset like. Like you were talking about this with my wife before we start recording, and she works. You for, say so accusatorily, and she works for a major corporation, like business or whatever. Mm-hmm. Rhymes with Schmerfreisen. <laughs> and I can I can understand how that's frustrating to her on a manager level, having to deal with people like that. But at the same time, I have the spirit of like, good, 
Like, let them screw over that company. I don't care. Like, that company has billions of dollars. I don't care if they have some employees wasting their money. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad these corporate okay. devils are <laughs> losing at least a little bit of money somewhere. I wasn't, while they're raking the rest of us over the coals. You know what I mean? Right. I wasn't going to take it here, but did you listen to the um, This American Life on the auto, in the, on that auto I plant? To, I, no, it was, a, it was a repeat. So I had listened to it before a long time ago, and I listened to about half of it, and then I turned it off. And basically what they what the This American Life was about was the closing of this plant that represented a partnership between GM and Toyota. And it was obviously a failed experiment, and GM declared bankruptcy and mm-hmm. you know all this other stuff. We had to bail them out. And what this American life propo- you know kind of um, proposes is the issue was an entrenched management mm-hmm. who saw their market share dropping precipitously over the course of two decades, mm-hmm. you know from Basically, 50s, they were, you know, number one. 80s, then it just plummeted, right, from the 80s through the 90s. And these people are just, they don't care. They could they could absolutely care less. Yeah. And to me, it also made me think of, like, how, f- how much do you have to fail, mm-hmm. right? Like, <laughs> these people can absorb so much failure. Yeah. These, these big companies. So, mm. you know the deep water horizon rig you had to pay out billions and billions of dollars yeah and yet you're still you know bp is like hey we're still uh watch our crappy commercials that we spent millions of dollars on right like mm-hmm. you you just it's it's disheartening i think it's disheartening on a corporate level because you do just want to see like the corporate example of a company brought low and humbled Mm -hmm. like i just want to see pick one pick a pick a big company that's just soulless Mm -hmm. i just want to see a commercial i want to see a walmart commercial where basically it's like oh my they ran out of money for props Mm -hmm. that's a terrible that's like a local (laughs) commercial that's terrible and and that would make that would warm my heart yeah and then on a personal level I just I just want to see some personal accountability, mm-hmm. you know? Like th- I I just want this guy to number 1, I want him to not make me keep asking him for money, mm-hmm. which is which is a awkward conversation to have anyway. Mm-hmm. And I want him to just do his job and give me my money. Just mm-hmm. give me my money. That's that's your job. Yeah. Right? And so every time we talk to him or He's either not getting back to us or he's like, oh, you, you got to do this other thing. I, I can't do anything. Yeah. You, know? you just, you have to send him in one sentence email that just says, where's my money? Something like that. I have. So he can't avoid it. No, he, he does not do it. He, you, you have to do this. You have to fill this out. Okay, Rick did it. Then, now what? Then you have to go oh. in his office and sit down and do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we stopped by his office. Uh-huh. He said, oh, you have to do it online. And say, okay, can I use your computer? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, give me your wallet. <laughs> you got 160-something bucks yeah. in there? Give it to me.
but we've got a lot to talk about. So let's get to talking about it. I'm ready, man. I, I, watched... I was telling you this. I came prepared tonight. Yes, you did. I'm, and I'm... then you refused to leave your Hearthstone game or Hearthstone game, yeah. however it's said. How dare to you? Just give me a list of the things you're going to talk about. I'm preemptively putting my seal of approval, not only on this <laughs> podcast, but on our True Detective one. Well, yeah, we've got three pages of notes to work through on that True Detective podcast. Yeah, I'm ready. Uh, I wa- so I watched uh, Tig, the documentary about the comedian Tig Notaro, who you have probably heard about because of her cancer thing. Your energy's bringing me down a little bit. Can we <laughs> pick it up a, just a touch? <laughs> Which is what this whole documentary is about. And you're going to watch it, right? You're, like, interested to watch it? Yeah, you can spoil her jokes, though. Well, yeah, there's one thing I don't want to spoil, but the thing that I I, I liked it, I would recommend watching it, first of all. But the thing that I thought that really sort of kept me off guard while watching the whole thing is it's a documentary about a person's life who is still alive and who's providing the majority of the interviews in the documentary, right? About her life? About herself. It just felt really strange. Because it's like normally you're watching these documentaries about someone who's Passed dead, away. right? Mm-hmm. Or like not really involved, I guess. And it just felt kind of weird for some reason to me. Can you? Does that sound weird to you? A little bit. I think so. So your basic. So is is part of your problem that the tone of the documentary is very somber? Like, does it feel like strange that it's like it just is like interviews with Tignataro that are then intercut with Tignataro doing things in real life. And then you come back to Tignataro, who's talking about herself. It just seems strange, kind of, for some reason. Right? That doesn't mm. sound strange. Maybe no, it just is uh, kind of a feeling the documentary gave me. Yeah, it sounds strange because I mean, I'm thinking about obviously documentaries that have been made about subjects, like specific people. Or you think about like, like Don't Look Back or No Direction Home, documentaries right. about Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is not in any way right. directly involved in any of those documentaries. It's all archival footage, stuff like that. That's what's tripping me up, honestly, are the back to the interviews with the subject. Right, exactly. Normally, the other dynamic works. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if there's like, like I imagine a scene being like just unbroken from her walking from the stage to the bar, grabbing a drink of water, and then starting to answer questions from... From the yeah, I mean that doesn't happen, but that's basically <laughs> right. what it is, right? Right, right? and that and that is a weird idea to just be like, "Hey, we just got some great stand-up footage. Can we ask you five questions about your childhood now?" <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. And then it also so then you start to think about like, or at least I started to think about some of the editing decisions. So they're like, it's a very emotionally charged topic, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's about her mother dying not soon thereafter she gets diagnosed with cancer um what happens after that maybe that's it or I, some other stuff happens after that which I'll save for the documentary but it's very emotionally charged and so some of it you start to see like they're interviewing her and then it does the thing where it's like the camera stays on the subject for too long and they're not saying anything and they're beginning to cry mm. and i'm thinking like 
why are they doing that? Like, is she like approving this? Is she saying like, I want you to hold this shot on me until I start to break down a little bit. It just seems kind of weird, right? That she's so directly involved with it. Well, is she, is she like credited as like a producer or something on it? I mean, I would imagine she'd have to be. Well, I think that's important because, you know, I can see in, in that case, I like the fact that that's in there because it kind of shows that she gave up the artistic vision to the mm. director. Because, yeah, if, if I had control, I'd be like, oh, let's cut that down a little bit, you yeah. know? So, I mean, I kind of like, un- unless she's, like, now if it's, like, directed by Tig Notaro. Right. Then no, I'm it's like, not directed oh. by her. But right. it, it just, it's something about it feels a little off. But it was good. I, I did enjoy it. And it was really, there's a couple things I thought were really interesting to watch. You get to see her um, it, it sort of evolve this one joke that she has. So she tries it out one time. It doesn't really work tries out again, still doesn't work. And then by the end, you know, she's kind of got it down and it cracks the room up or whatever. Right. Even though it seems to me like the worst form of the joke by the end. Right. So you like the beginning. I like the very first part of the, the very first evolution of the joke. By the end, it just kind of, I don't know, maybe it's because I'd heard it so many times. Isn't that the story of the artist, (laughs) Justin? I think Um, you're missing some deep thematic (laughs) material here. But it's, it's really... It's really uh, interesting. Some of the stuff it goes into, there's like, um, there is a, a moment that I know you're going to have a really hard time watching where it's like one of the most uncomfortable and awkward things I've ever watched in my life. And it's like you're seeing a literal um, sea change in emotions in these two people going from one end of the spectrum to the complete opposite end in like the bat of an eye. It's so weird to as watch. As long as there's no public dancing. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. It's a very, but pri- that's the other thing that makes it kind of weird. It's a very private moment. And yet they're being, you know, filmed by a documentary. Um, mm. The, the last you're thing making that, me sweat right now. Just thinking, <laughs> and my palms are sweating. It's really uncomfortable. Okay. The last thing I'll say about it is the only thing that, that kind of bothered me is the first half of the documentary is is really interesting stuff because it's um it's I would not interesting it's 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 I would say it's pretty unprecedented stuff because you're following Tignataro sort of talking about how her mom died suddenly in this freak accident. Not soon thereafter, she discovers she's got. Uh, uh, breast cancer in both of her breasts. Um, and so you're following all of that. And it seems like very um, unconventional kind of just like stuff you haven't really seen before. And then the second half is all it's, it's handled it's unconventional material handled very conventionally, I guess, mm-hmm. which maybe makes it palatable, but there's like a love interest portion that is so, sappy and so terrible and it's like they've telegraphed the ending of it from the beginning and yet, and yet it still goes through the is this gonna work phase and ah it doesn't work but it's like oh no it doesn't work. it just is like like i knew how this was going to end f- from the beginning right from, from as soon as you introduced it into the documentary like i didn't need all of this like sort of like uh just it just felt like very uh produced drama you know what i mean it just seemed like it it was it was the one part of the documentary that was just kind of like i wish they would just kind of get past we're living this. in the age of curated reality <laughs> <Right>. Justin. exactly 
You need to just accept it. Yeah. And so after that, I went and listened to. Um, so the whole impetus of all of all this was that she found out she had cancer. The next night, she was supposed to do this stand-up set. She went and did it anyways, and she and the whole set was this like right historical that was yeah that was the, yeah that Louis that C.K. Louis C.K. was going on about all these communities. So I listened to that afterwards because she released it. It's like a thirty-minute comedy mm-hmm. set, and that is really interesting as well i listened to it yeah oh you have listened to Mm -hmm. it yeah it's 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 pretty good i feel like it 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 kind of starts to lose its way towards the end oh oh absolutely but But the beginning is really strong exactly exactly yeah and where she's like she says and she's like no it's okay it's okay Mm -hmm. and she's like yeah it's not okay (laughs) you know and and to see her working through that it it really was pretty i followed that story when it broke originally so i'm really interested in seeing the Seeing the documentary, yeah. So I would recommend it. It's a uh, it's interesting. Okay. Uh, something else I watched, and I've been trying to remember how I got to it. It was you were talking about some movie on Netflix. Oh, Wild Canaries, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the Wild Canaries thing. On it is this is the cover for a movie called Toad Road. The very first suggestion. The very first suggestion was Toad Road. I clicked on it because it's called Toad Road, right? And it's got a one-star review. (laughs) And it just, like, I I couldn't let it go, right? So I ended up watching Toad Road because I was like, I've got to see what this movie is about. And it turned out to be actually, like, really interesting. So much so that... I started after it was over. I started reading all these different things about it, and then I told you to watch it. Um, so let's talk about Toad Road. It's uh, it's uh, the director described it as like half documentary, half uh, traditional f- or narrative film, mm-hmm. I guess. And so the idea was that he found these uh, this group of friends from Baltimore. I think it was. Uh, he found them through. Was in Pennsylvania. The movie is in Pennsylvania. Yeah, but the were teenagers, they in the kids are from Baltimore. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and he found them through Vice's MySpace page because this m- movie was cast in 2008. And so the f- sort of the first half of the movie is just more or less a documentary of this of this group of friends. Right. And they're like grimy, hardcore scene kids, basically, that like to experiment with drugs. Right. And so you're just watching these dummies experiment with drugs for like 45 minutes. There's a very loose thread of a story um, weaved in there about an urban legend where there's a road called Toad Road. It has seven gates on it. Each gate represents the seven gates of hell. One of the group of friends who was the non-drug user, starts, Sarah. Sarah, starts experimenting with drugs. And she takes it further than all the other kids who are just using it to do whatever. And she starts, she basically uses it as, as this can open up portals in my mind and show me the true reality of the universe, basically. right? That's how right. she looks at it. Um, and it goes on from there. So what did you think of the, 
I, th- I think the biggest problem I had with the movie, and I don't know how to separate these things, which you may have noticed if you listen to enough of these podcasts, is I don't like these kids. <laughs> like, <laughs> these kids are annoying to me. Surprise. And so that makes me not like the movie, right? Because it's about them, first of all, but just as like, I'm watching a group of people that I don't like for 45 minutes. It's like, I don't want to watch these people anymore. And it's even more true here because it's basically just these kids being themselves, more or less. Did that not affect you in any way? Um, or were you able to get past that? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing I want to say is I would recommend this as well. If anybody has any interest in watching... But who would you recommend it to? Well, that's why we're recording this. I guess. I mean, you. I would recommend it to you... And I recommended it to Marco just because he said he needed things to watch. But the only reason I recommended it to you is because, like, I thought the concept was interesting and because you basically try and watch everything. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I guess I would say this this has a very ambiguous ending. And I yeah. think it, I think it works as a film, though. I think that to me that's the important distinction because some some things that you end up watching aren't films; they're ideas, right? Where you're like, oh, I see what they're trying to do. Nothing about that was compelling. This actually has a compelling cinematic vision. I think represents mm-hmm. a, a compelling cinematic vision. I think there's enough there for me to recommend it. I don't anticipate the one star rating bumping up a hot. A lot mm-hmm. as more people watch this, I see it being like, yeah, I don't understand it or I didn't mm-hmm. care about it or whatever. But for a few people, I think it might actually push through and and stick with them a little bit. Like it's honestly, it stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I tried to go in without reading anything about this movie, yeah. and so midway through, I was like, is this a documentary? Like to me, it was such an interesting blend of documentary and narrative filmmaking and i thought you know it was balanced so well your question of did watching real kids do these real things did that bother me Mm -hmm. um in in what sense in the sense of i'm watching these people kind of these kids like ruin their lives right well i would say moralistically of course that's something we should talk about but just in a like it turned me off from the it made me not want to watch the movie not in a sense of like i can't believe they're doing this just because like i find these kids annoying yeah i i guess because I, I, i think i would say just quickly to your point of I never once thought, is this a documentary while watching it? I just thought this is a low budget indie movie with bad actors. I mean, from, from the first party scene, which pretty much opens up the, the film where you have basically people punching each other, guys punching girls, lighting their pubic hair on fire. Yeah. It's until later. Oh, okay. But no, I, (laughs) that, yeah, that stuff annoyed me in the sense of, you know, I remember kind of being around that yeah. and it's stupid. Yeah. It's stupid. Um, 
And it, it's not worthy of a lot of my time. Right. Maybe it's worthy of setting up these characters and whatever. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to watch or get the sense that somebody's like, look how hilarious these people mm-hmm. are, right? That's why Jackass runs pretty thin. Like, you know what I've been... A quick side note. Bam Majera, have you been mm-hmm. seeing? Like, I mean... You know, you're basically watching the implosion of a of a person, right? You know, and it's like that's exactly where you thought those people would would be going. Mm-hmm. Like he's a complete kind of washout. Yeah, you know. Um, so no, that that's not compelling viewing for me. Mm-hmm. What was compelling was the mythology of the movie that he keeps dropping in. So as you start talking about Toad Road, mm-hmm. the Seven Gates of Hell, um, I started getting more interested. And honestly, the drug stuff in it was really intriguing to me as well, because I think it represents a real part of where we're going as a society is our relationship with drugs. Right. And what what constitutes a healthy approach and use of drugs? What can they do for us, you know, mm-hmm. and balancing this um and it, I think it's really tough to balance, you know, yeah, the drug stuff became infinitely more interesting to me once I had read about the movie and saw that it was more or less a documentary that the what the filmmaker wanted to do. He wanted to make a narrative film out of a documentary, basically. He wanted to take. Uh, basically subject of a documentary and sort of lightly force this mm-hmm. story onto mm-hmm. it. And that is really interesting to mm-hmm. me. And I was, I was, we were talking a little bit about it before and I was telling you that after reading all that stuff afterwards, I feel like I didn't pay close enough attention to it while I was watching it. And I kind of, I, I want to watch it again. I guess I would say I want I want to have watched it more closely the first time I watched it because I don't want to watch it again. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I was watching, I told you this, I was watching every single frame. Right. Looking for something because you you told me you're like, you know, you're going to want to read up after this. Yeah. So I was really trying to pay attention to pick up on stuff. And that's why I think it kind of threw me when I started feeling like, is this a documentary and mm-hmm. the narrative aspects? So I think it actually worked on me a, a little better than maybe it worked on you. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, you were going in thinking, I'm watching a one-star movie called Toad Road. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, no, it, it really has stuck with me. It made me think of, you know, the drug use angle, obviously, is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And then what what stood out to you when you're reading about it afterwards? Well, the first thing that stood out to me was of course the, the fact that the girl, Sarah, who's the main girl in the movie, like a week, was it before or after the movie premiered? She died of a heroin overdose. Was it heroin? Yeah. Okay. So that was like, just spooky you know i mean it's it's terrible of course because this girl died but then it's when you when you put it uh in conjunction with this movie that she was in that was all about her like discovering drugs and it kind of taking over her life 
it became like extra spooky. <laughs> I mean, just right. like that's really sad. So that was the first thing. Um, and uh, there's uh, uh, an article that I read that did a whole piece on it. And I'll link to that. I can't remember what it was called, but it just went into it followed her story more or less and talked about the movie. And then I also read uh, an interview that Vice did with the director where he was talking about the documentary aspects and what he was going for. And I found that really interesting. Um, And so I started to after that, I started to sort of see it more. And there's a couple of interviews or there's a couple of reviews on Letterboxd that kind of really spoke to me about how it's portraying drug use and stuff like that. And uh, like you were saying, is this the way the culture is going? And so once you, once I realized that this, all of this footage I'm seeing is not just necessarily bad, unexperienced actors, it's kind of like, this guy just filming these group of kids hanging mm-hmm. out for hours on end and, and real cutting, drug use, cutting and the foot and real drug use. It takes on a, a new meaning and it's, it's more like, you know, it's, you're just getting rid of sort of that arbitrary, uh, suspension of disbelief where it's like, I'm watching this, but is this really what it's like? You know what I mean? And it's like, Oh, it turns out this was actually like documentary footage. So yes, that is that really is what, what it's like. like. Yeah. So that's what stuck out. That's, that's what stuck with me. And that's what I think makes it interesting to at least consider watching. Yeah, I think, and, you know, it made me feel like I wanted to follow up on these characters just like I would on a documentary. Right. A good documentary will send me immediately online to be like, this person have a Twitter, where are they at right now, mm. what's going on in their life? And that's exactly how I felt about all these all these kids. I will say, wrapping up, a discussion about the film because I have a few more questions for sure. you about the, all the stuff surrounding the film. My, my feelings are I really wanted more mythology. Yeah. There's definitely not enough. It's more documentary than it is story. There's not enough story. In it. Yeah. And, and that's when it really started to actually get my attention before I had read everything was when they go into the woods, everything during and after he goes into the woods with Sarah, I thought is great even as ambivalent as it ends up being, I still really liked it. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's not enough maybe towards the beginning or maybe a little bit more at the end. There's just not enough of it in the movie. Yeah. And, and and that's kind of what I wanted. And I felt like there's a way, you know, in reading some reviews, some people are saying like, Oh, these didn't have the budget, you know, and it's like, I think there's ways to convey Mm -hmm. more about that mythology that you had without needing a, bigger budget when i thought the visual effects of what he was doing in the woods was great so did i like i would have taken more of that and that's the other thing is i think the interstitial pieces when he kind of goes more narratively focused Mm -hmm. he actually has a really great eye for composition Mm -hmm. and gets some really great shots which i think really ties it together because a lot of times indie films look and feel like indie films Mm -hmm. and the artistry isn't really the focus, but in this, it has some really beautiful scenes. So I've heard references to Gus Van Sant and more Gia Coppola than Sofia Coppola. Gia Coppola just did um, 
you know, the one film Palo Alto, mm-hmm. which which I watched and like and I, I compare this more with Palo Alto, where Palo Alto takes on kids of a similar age who are more wealthy mm-hmm. but are just as disaffected, just as nihilistic. Right. And um the problem is, is that it's, it's heightened, right? So the emphasis on that is on the artistry. And in this, like you said, you're like, is this, re- is this how it really is? You're like, yep, that's exactly mm-hmm. how it is, you know? Um, so I feel like it's, it's, it's in some ways a better marker of this moment or that generation or that group than Palo Alto is because, you know, it's so stylized. Right. <clears throat> it's like virgin suicides or something. Yeah. So I had an issue with this film that mm-hmm. I, wanted, I wanted your take. And it honestly wasn't really around the drug use mm-hmm. because I felt like they were doing this before. Right. They are doing this now. Mm-hmm. And some of them may continue to do it in the right. future. Um, but there's a scene where one of the lead characters, so spoiler alert, Sarah disappears. Mm-hmm. And is it James? Mm-hmm. It is James. James is left behind. He mm-hmm. doesn't get to go through all seven gates. He doesn't get the the uh, pleasure of going to hell, basically. Exactly. <laughs> of the void. Like, basically, there's voiceover of her basically where she is now. Mm-hmm. And it's just basically like falling into an endless pit right. of darkness. And I was like, Ugh, no thanks. So yeah, he doesn't get to experience the beautiful glory of the black <laughs> hole. Um, and so he's left and some people think maybe he killed her or... Everyone thinks he's at least suspicious. Right. Nobody believes him. And that and that it should be said, they go into the woods, he passes out whatever and he's found weeks later. And yes. then you start following weeks, and then it turns into months, and then it's six months. Yeah. He, he, he thinks it was forward in time. overnight. Yeah. Right. And it's, so anyway, um, so yeah, everyone is suspicious of him, and there's a scene where he, you know, these characters are kind of nihilistic. And part of the point is that James is trying to use Sarah as a way to propel him out of his group of friends. Mm-hmm. And she's just wanting to go deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and with her gone, he just basically gives himself over to his nihilism. Right. And there is, again, documentary footage of them on a boardwalk. And basically his friends are like yelling to strangers like, who wants to knock James unconscious? He's right. been trying to get knocked unconscious all night. And there are just this footage of like three or four people punching him as hard as they can well i think that's the question is that documentary footage yes yes <laughs> and i felt like this i don't doubt there's probably like james's idea to be like hey man i think this uh you know this character do this and the director kept saying how much of themselves they put in this thing right and i don't doubt for a second especially that last punch and the way that mm-hmm. you know his friends are calling out to a stranger and the stranger walks up like any idiot would who would be willing to do that to a stranger. Mm-hmm. He didn't feel like he was acting at all. And then when the punch lands, it's just like, yeah, that guy just got 
punched. Yeah. I think it speaks to what you said before, where after the movie is over and you've read everything, because you learn that it's a, these are actually a group of friends that you want to know where they are now. Like what I want to know, what I want to see is interviews with the cast. Now I want to know how they thought they were portrayed in the film, what they thought of it, you know, what they think of it now. Did they learn anything from it? And that would be one of those moments. If that is real, which I'm sure it is, but at the same time, I still don't, I'm not, certain i don't have i don't know 100 that it's real i imagine it is i guess but i think the the question is under what uh state did he make that decision right is that him like keyed up and drunk and being like yeah it's a great idea let's do it (laughs) right or is it him being like okay we're going to do this and in order to do it, I need to get drunk or whatever. I need to be high or whatever. And did he make that decision when he was of sound mind? Or was it just more of, hey, I'm following these kids around. Ah, they just got wasted. And now they're out on the boardwalk. And they think uh, getting sucker punched is a good idea. And and that and that's my feeling. is like for the filmmaker. And that felt like, you know, that was obviously low quality video. One of his friends was holding the camera. Like it, it obviously wasn't staged. I felt like it was footage that maybe they went out and got themselves and gave to the director. It's like, hey, look what we filmed last night. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm just imagining, right? And James mm-hmm. being like, use, I think this is what the character would would have done. Would have done. Mm-hmm. I feel like as a filmmaker, you have to question yourself at some point and step in and be like, you know, thanks for the footage. I'm not going to use it mm-hmm. or whatever. Because. It is so, it's not only so self-destructive of the footage, but it's so exploitative of that character, it feels like, Mm -hmm. where he might or might not do that. But I'm watching a guy try and get concussed, Mm -hmm. getting concussed and dealing with it, all for the benefit of what? Like, what artistically am I getting out of that moment that I didn't get out of him trashing his bare room Mm -hmm. you know to pieces which apparently they they shouldn't like that wasn't their room like that was yeah like that guy who showed him the room in another interview i read Uh um that was a guy who was really like post that room on craigslist for people to stay in (laughs) and the interviewer just goes how'd you how'd you get to trash your room they're like we wish we could tell that story but we can't so (laughs) you feel like maybe there's some legal thing where the guy was trying to maybe sue them for it or something but um but yeah, you know, like so I just I just couldn't get over the fact of you know, what not only from the character's level, but I want to hear from the filmmaker on that. Like why did you use the footage of James self-harming himself to that extent? Right. What were you getting out of that footage? Cuz it it follows like three people trying to do it. It doesn't just show like the last punch. It really kind of stays on that imagery mm-hmm. for I think a little too long. Mm-hmm. And it it really that kind of upset me. Yeah, I mean, like I said, because when I was watching it, I wasn't viewing it in any way as a documentary. It didn't strike me as in any certain way, and so 
I don't have that raw sort of reaction to it. Well, you're heartless. I have <laughs> the ability of, or I have the, I have the perspective of thinking about it afterwards. And afterwards I can say, you know, if he made the decision himself when he was of sound mind, I may think it's a stupid decision, but it's his decision. And I don't really care. Yeah, he may think it's a stupid decision. Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, to- that's toad road. Um, and on the complete road, on the complete opposite end of that, uh, you watched Inside Out. Yeah, in the theater. I with need your to pick me up, son. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, how did that go? And second of all, what did you think of the movie? It went well. Uh, my son is hyper empathetic, right? And so, there was a scene. Like, we, we basically watched as many clips as we could before we went and saw the movie. Mm-hmm. So he could anticipate what was happening. We found the, spoiler alert, but it's been out for a while, Bing Bong disappearing. Uh-huh. We found that online, so I was like, okay, <laughs> Bing Bong uh-huh. gets left in the discarded long-term memory. Uh-huh. And, you know. It literally evaporates. <laughs> yeah. And he was fine with that. Okay. What he wasn't okay with was Riley running away from home. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever considered that possibility. <laughs> that he could run away from home. That he could run away from home. Well, he's only six. <laughs> exactly. But it, it honestly like surprised me. Like There are moments where, you know, when your child is developing, you realize, wow, they've never experienced this before. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. they don't have a reference for this word. And it could be just a, any word. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know what cotton is. You know, it's like... Wow! Yeah, you your brain has no idea for the in for him something I totally never thought of. Yeah, he's never thought of running away, and the idea of running away is the most terrifying thing <laughs> ever. Right, as a new concept, mm-hmm. go away from your parents, live on the streets. Right, like live out in the darkness. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's horrifying, and so he literally could not. He could not like process that. There's a scene where Riley like steals her mother's credit card. Uh-huh. Couldn't do it. Could not do it. So what did he do? He jumped up in my lap and he was like, Dad, I, I don't like this movie anymore. I, I don't like the movie. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go, Dad. 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 And he like he gets louder uh-huh. as he gets. And is the more theater concerned. crowded? Uh half full. Okay. But you know, th- there are people around. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, Shh. I was like, it's okay, it's okay, you know, it'll be okay or whatever. Go on. When he anticipates how it's all going to come together again, be okay. He's he's fine. He's fine. So when she got on the bus, and the emotions inside are starting to work together, then he started to see. Oh, they're going to remind her of uh-huh. the parents, and she's going to be sad. And, and does he have any concept of the idea that this is that it's a movie? You know what I mean? Like not. I don't mean to say that flippantly no, because yeah. like Julia struggles. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like right. it, the easiest example is violence, right? right? It's like for the most part when things are violent, like in John Wick, it just is like, eh, it's a movie. I know this is all fake. But Julia's watching. She's like, oh, this is really violent. And I don't want to watch it anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like you can't just be like, it's okay. It's just a movie. Right, right, right. No, and there was a moment we were watching another film where Indy jumped in my lap and he literally, he was like, dad, calm me down. And I realized like <laughs> he's out of, his emotions are out of control. Like he doesn't uh-huh. have control. It's not about me being like, 
talking sense into him in this moment. It's about me literally getting his heart rate down. Mm-hmm. Like he, and he doesn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah, he, he actually, and this is what's weird is he's in this middle ground where he, you know, the abstract thought stuff. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? He doesn't know what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, but he asked me a really perceptive question that kind of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. He was like, dad, when, uh, when Joy was crying, how did they get in her mind? Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. the fact that the feeling was having feelings right. meant development for that feeling. Yeah. And that I was like, wow, that's a that's a really perceptive way of viewing this film. Right. And a really perceptive take on it that a six year old came up with his by himself. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really great. And we've had a broadened vocabulary of which to talk about his emotions. I was responding. Mm. So he got the concepts because of the movie. You mean because of the movie, that's what I was going to ask. So did, do you, have you noticed him like using those concepts, concepts on his, with his own emotions? Yeah. He was playing with his cousins and he was like, you're making me, you're making anger take control, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I'm going to be honest. That sounds pretty creepy <laughs> when you don't know that it's like referencing, referencing a movie. Exactly. <laughs> Is he going to turn to the Hulk? Anger's taking control, control of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But when you hear it out of his sweet little six year old right. mouth, his voice, it's no. But when you know, well, adorable. I mean, when you know it's in reference to like Inside Out, it's actually like amazing, right? Right. Yeah. That, I did wonder. I was like, man, if I had this expanded emotional vocabulary, right? who would I turn out to be today? <laughs> <laughs> Justin, you're making me turn into <laughs> anger. Um, but so, yeah, he, you know, and he doesn't have, he can't really disassociate himself from, from the fact that it's a movie. But what I like about movies and the reason why I keep encouraging him to go to movies, even though every single movie he's seen has caused him to cry, <laughs> jump into my lap, and claim that he hates or uh-huh. does not like the movie right. and never liked the movie, you know? Um, and then at the end, he loves it. Is that I see him developing a coping mechanism. So the trailer for Inside Out, like the first trailer is basically the extended fight scene where Riley tells her parents to shut up. Right. And Indy could not deal with that, mm-hmm. right? He did not like seeing a kid fight with their parents. Mm-hmm. And who would? I can't blame him. You know, mm-hmm. that's a that's a tough scene to sit I there. love that scene. Well, I know you do. <laughs> uh, and so uh, as we were preparing, he actually watched the trailer and like re- rewound that scene and watched like three or four times mm-hmm. until he could like get it. Mm-hmm all the way through watching it and see what they were doing. Mm. I really liked that. I was like, great, you know, like confront those feelings, right? (laughs) Work through that. Uh So I think that he's, I think he's going to work through it, but he has no distance from a movie in real life Mm -hmm. right now. He is in the movie every time a movie comes on. Right. So he's more like Julian that way. Yeah. I haven't shown him John Wick though, so maybe. <laughs> okay, so what did you think of the movie? So yeah, I can I, I mean, we kind of, you know, we talked about it a little bit when you talked about it, um, and I kind of, you can pretty much get the feeling of what I thought. I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, and just for the 
just for the fact of expanding the emotional vocabulary I could have with my kid, I'm mm-hmm. grateful. But what I really like, the one thing that I, that I do want to say about it is I like how they stuck with the conceit of the film to solve the problems within the film. Right. So it doesn't end with them like just walking along a rickety bridge back to headquarters. They have to use the fake boyfriend mm-hmm. to clone himself to then make a fake boyfriend bridge that they all sacrifice themselves for. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's actually like a, a kind of... Um, it's definitely an interesting mm-hmm. idea and it's definitely taking the world that they set up and using the elements of that world to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. They're not just doing just your standard, you know, hero's journey end to it. So I, I really um, appreciated all of that. And, and I thought the idea, I can see how some people could get lost in the wit of the film. It really is smart and witty. Yeah. I think some people, the main argument I've heard is that they feel like it's like, it's just too much, right? Mm. It's just like from long-term memory into like discarding the old memories to like bing bong and the imaginary friend and mm. all this. It's just like all crammed in and they kind of, to me, what it seems like they want is a simpler approach mm-hmm. up, right? Pretty simple, emotional, very emotional because of its simplicity, and this one is really kind of packed full of a mm-hmm. lot of stuff going on. It's really mm-hmm. busy. But I think it all ties back to like have a better conversation about it then. Well, you know? it, yeah, and it's not needlessly busy. <laughs> it's it's busy for a reason. I feel like everything in there is 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 commenting on something, right? It's all sort of everything in there is referencing something that we've all experienced, but kind of don't know how to explain. You know what I mean? Because it's memory. Like what is memory? You know what I mean? We don't really know much about it. Right. So. Yeah. I thought it was, it's, it's so smart. And I think that you can disassociate it a little bit and be like, is it as entertaining as it is smart? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it was entertaining enough and it was definitely Smart enough in spades. So. so did Indy like it? And would you consider it a kid's movie? He he loved it. Mm-hmm. It's not a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I think kids can get a lot out of it, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine... I think Indy's at, the, at that tipping point. I can't imagine taking a five-year-old... Mm. to see it right like mm-hmm. where are they going to get out of it mm-hmm. the bright colors right maybe yeah well and that's what i was trying to figure out because i've taken my girls to see it twice now and they or at least sophia who just turned three she wants to go see it again she wants to go see it on saturday so we might do that again on saturday charlotte i mean she's one she's not getting anything out of it but she sits through it and she recognizes the characters and we've got an inside out book that we read from now and she loves to turn the pages on and stuff like that. So I don't think they're getting anything out of it necessarily, but that's kind of what I was, what I was thinking. Like, I feel like it's an adult's movie with a children's movie skin on it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. 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 Absolutely. It's, it's, it's all visually driven towards kids but none of its actual dialogue or story is for kids. It's all kind of for adults, 
even though it does provide this unique vehicle for kids to be like, oh, these emotions are in me and they do things to me, maybe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when I'm feeling this way, it's because I'm angry, right? Yep. And maybe I need more of this other emotion or whatever. Or, not, I mean, that's not the message. The message is it's okay to feel this way sometimes. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay. You watched um, a documentary called Lost Soul. I did. And it's about one of my pillars of cinematic life. <laughs> the Island of Dr. Moreau. Right. With the, Val Kilmer. Was it like 1998? I was going to say four. I don't know. No, yeah. I think it's around there. It should be. Or was it 94? You know it's, what? It's it the might. remake. It's not the original. It's the remake. And it's it follows a the, the original director. 1996. 96. Richard, is it Sherman? Stanley. Stanley. Richard Stanley. And Richard Stanley was making small independent films and then tried to make this... Island of Dr. Moreau. Mm -hmm. And it was like his dream project. Mm -hmm. And let's just say this is the last film I think he ever tried to (laughs) tried to direct. And it basically follows him, him flaming out of this project relatively early. Well, they actually just started filming and there are conflicting reports between the people who work for the studio saying Richard Stanley had no control over the set. Right. He wasn't doing what he needed to do. And Richard Stanley basically saying everything was going great. You know, we, I ran into bumps with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando basically. Mm-hmm. And they ruined, they, he, he he basically says Val Kilmer ruined his life. <laughs> And he he has a compelling case. Uh, as you hold up the two, and mm-hmm. again, Val Kilmer's not um, interviewed in the film. Right. I tend to believe Richard Stanley's version <laughs> of events and some of the other people who are on set, yeah. their version of events, than the idea that Val Kilmer is actually a really stand-up dude who <laughs> really wanted to be on that set and mm-hmm. really wanted to work with a first-time director who mm-hmm. was kind of an oddball. But the one question I have for Richard Sherman... Stanley. Oh, man, why do I keep saying that? <laughs> um, Richard Stanley. Richard Sherman's the cornerback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so they they bring in um, John Schlesinger mm-hmm. to finish the film. And basically to shoot the film, because Stanley had not gotten very far into it. And they talk about his production, um, director of production or whatever, mm-hmm. production assistant, seems too low a title for him. Mm-hmm. But he was like, as soon as we took on this project, I immediately brought out my map, saw where they were filming in Africa and all this. And he's like, and then I brought out my rainfall map and I laid it over. And he's like, you know, rainfall was high in this area. But he's like, there's one dot that was like purple. Mm-hmm. That was like the heaviest rainfall. And he's like, that was the place they set up to film. <laughs> and so it made me think like, <clears throat> did Stanley 
ever think mm-hmm. to pull out like the rain chart? Mm-hmm. Like who would? I would never in a right. million That's years. What I was gonna say I would have never thought of that. Think to do that, right? <laughs> right? And so you get to these guys who are like, you know, Schlesinger has been like a director for decades. Mm-hmm. He's well respected, and um, you know his team. You realize like they know, like they they know, right? What's the rainfall map? One of the first things you do. Mm-hmm. Why did they choose there? Right. You know, and it's like really remote. And you had to travel an hour either way to get to where you're shooting and all this stuff. And he was basically saying it made no sense why why they were there. Mm-hmm. And so that made me think like, okay, so Stanley probably didn't have the right view of it either. Mm-hmm. That right. everything was going good. He probably was making bad decisions right. of a first-time director as well. So truth is somewhere in the middle. Right. But this film then kind of devolves into like a Hollywood gossip tale of, you know, espionage (laughs) of Stanley going to like um, witches to like curse the (laughs) curse the set. Yes. (laughs) And that sounds great. (laughs) Marlon Brando being Marlon Brando. Right. And Val Kilmer being crazy. Whatever he is. Whatever he is. Who yeah. knows? Um, I was also disappointed. They overlook some real, like, David the Lewis is not even talked about. And mm-hmm. I love, like, I love that movie. Mm-hmm. I remember when it came out, I watched it. It was one movie that I watched and, like, immediately rewound and watched mm-hmm. again. For whatever reason, Island of Dr. Moreau really got to me mm-hmm. as a as a kid. <laughs> And I think I could see through all the, like, the insanity of it and how fake it is and how bizarre Marlon Brando is. Mm. But it all spoke to me as, like, this is camp filmmaking for me, like, the pinnacle. Like, Mm. I loved it. Mm. I have not seen it since. Right. (laughs) But I maybe watched it. I watched it over a dozen times, I'm sure, within a year of it coming out. And uh, so I was fascinated by this, but they don't really talk about the film at all or put it in context. Mm -hmm. They kind of follow Stanley. It's interesting. He actually ended up being an extra on the film. (laughs) One of the dressed up creatures Mm -hmm. and snuck back on and like kept going to shoots (laughs) as this dog. (laughs) Seems like a weird consolation prize. <laughs> exactly. It's such a weird thing. And yeah. he's just like, that's what he was doing. And he didn't really do anything to the set, but he like threatened to do stuff to the set. And and the whole set was just run over by drugs and mm-hmm. insanity. And it, I mean, that's interesting, but it doesn't really go in. It just kind of touches on these things and then it just kind of is over. Yeah. Um. So, you know, as a... As some kind of deeper understanding of the film, it doesn't really work, but it's definitely interesting. Like, I would say it's good to do something else to mm-hmm. fold laundry and watch it or whatever, um, and pop in for some of the crazy, crazy stories of the smallest man on earth physically abusing people. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he was very violent. And would try and hit people. Wow. And and really, Marlon Brando became kind of enamored with him. Uh-huh. 
and really beefed up his part a little bit. And it really seems like Marlon Brando was just in such a weird headspace. His his daughter had just died too previously, uh, like right before he started filming. And so he just seemed to be in a really weird place. And like John Schlesinger didn't get along with him and hated him. And he hated him and he hated Val Kilmer. And Val Kilmer hated him. And is this in, so this is in the documentary or this is just all stuff? tertiary stuff that you know just because no this is all in the documentary (laughs) this is all in the documentary all right yeah it it sounds interesting to me i i i also loved island of dr moreau when it came out i was 14 at the time and the last time i saw it was when i was 14 so i I suggest we do a dvd commentary track to The Island of Dr. Moreau. Is it available anywhere? I'm not going to pay sure money for can, it. I will pay money for it. <laughs> I will pay money for it. I mean, I uh-huh. still remember sequences from that, mm-hmm. you know, that stand out in my mind. It, the sad thing is, is that it really did seem like, you know, and I watched Jodorowsky's Dune. Did you see that? The mm-hmm. documentary about Jodorowsky. Yeah. His failed attempt to make Dune. That, even when you see his images, makes me feel like that probably wasn't <laughs> going to be a good film, you know. <laughs> that was going to be crazy and weird. This one, though, I think retained enough of Richard Stanley's concepts and ideas. Mm-hmm. I think he actually would have really had something. I, mm-hmm. you know, I think it kind of carries over into the film that is today. Yeah. Um, and you, so you were reading Wolf in White Van, written by John Darnielle, who's a musician, right? Yes, he sings for the Mountain Goats. That's right. Okay. And one, of the, one of the bands that I wish. I you liked. liked right, so I'm in the same boat. And so you finished it. I finished it. Okay, it's one of the longest reads for. And a it's book a so novel, short. right? It's not mm-hmm. like a. Okay. And it it made me think about one thing in terms of of a writer. Um, how do you deal with parceling out information that's key to a character, without frustrating the audience? Mm-hmm. And making it feel organic to your story. So, for example, something happened to this main character's face. Right. And it's and it's referred to throughout the book. Mm-hmm. But it's never said what he did to it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a part where the book goes into a second part and he tells you roughly what he did to his face. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the end, I was just like... Why, why, why withhold that information, especially if you're going to refer to it, you know, and refer to it in like going up to the line and then not say, you know, it's like she looked at my face. Had she known what I'd done, maybe she Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been so whatever. Whatever. It's like instead of saying if she'd known what I'd done, you could have said instead if she knew I cut it up with a knife or whatever, Mm -hmm. which isn't what I did, Mm -hmm. then blah, blah, blah. So I, so I know but instead, I'm left in this limbo of like, what did you do to your face? And just wanted right. to jump in and be like, just tell me what he did to his right. face. Because it seems so tangential to the actual story. Because mm-hmm. the story is about this character. And he has a disfigured face, which is the result of something he's done to it himself. Mm-hmm. People don't really know why he did it to himself. You get the sense that he just basically, out of just nihilistic boredom, potentially, mm-hmm. just whatever poured acid on it. Like, mm-hmm. you don't know what he did. Um, 
And now everyone else has to deal with him now. And then also he's retreated into this world of fantasy. So he actually does like a mail in text based adventure. We created a world where people write in like moves and he'll write back like, you know, you're in this wasteland mm-hmm. you hear, you know, footsteps above, you know, the bridge above you. What do you do? And mail it to them. And they mail back like, I think it's, you know, roving bandits. I stay hidden. And it's all this imaginary world that he's created because during his recovery, he just could only revert back to Mm. um, his imagination. You know, the creator of Adventure Time did that on Twitter. Pendleton Ward. Mm -hmm. Did he? He did like a text based. I didn't didn't know he did that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he did it through Twitter. So it was like he gave the prompt and then I don't know if it was just the first person to respond or he picked somebody and then yeah, so I'm wondering how, how you manage that. Yeah. Um, anyways, seems like the problems with the ask me anything's on Reddit. Like if there's something cool going on on the internet, like on Reddit or Twitter, if you're not like the first 10, you're like <laughs> number 1,088. Right, and yeah. it's like, no one's ever going to read that. Like why do I even write a question? They're yeah. not, they're not going to get that far. Or, it's kind of the same issue that I think True Detective has had this season, right? Where it's like, um, there's a lot of the characters have things that have happened to them in the past, but like for one of them, you don't, you didn't, you don't. I mean, you had a pretty strong suspicion of what it was, but you didn't find out until this past episode, and there's literally two episodes left. Exactly, and and that's what makes me feel like what's that balance and wolf and white van is still a book that i could i could recommend but that was something that kept nagging at me like why did he choose to withhold this information Mm -hmm. it didn't seem like it when he actually said it i don't know you you could maybe justify it's not the best example for that maybe but there are other really good examples where i'm like why are you withholding like yeah true detective why are you withholding this information from me yeah when all you need to do is just like stop the suspense, just tell me. Okay, great. And especially with True Detective, just to like, there did, there didn't seem to be any sort of plot reason to hold it off or reveal it when they did. It was just kind of like a moment. I get the crying game. I know why you <laughs> why you withheld that information, right? Yeah. But I but I don't get some of these other. Like character mo- and usually involves like I have a dark past. Right. Like uh, I'm not telling. Yeah. And man, for books to keep referencing it, the worst thing is the time jump, right? Mm-hmm. Where you go modern day, and it's like right when they're about to reveal something, it's like time jump back to their childhood, and it's like. So, last week you recommended an honest liar mm-hmm. documentary. Mm-hmm. I watched it on Saturday. I think it was with Julia. Another question about why withhold certain information? Yeah, and that the the sort of billing of that is really strange. Where it's like 
this guy uncovered other people's secret, but he had a secret, secret of, of his, his own. own. It's just like, eh, not really. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you could make the argument that it was Jose Alvarez's identity, but I am not sure that's what they were referring to as much as his, they were referring to his sexuality. Right. So, so Honest Fire is about uh, the remarkable Randy. The amazing, amazing Randy. Why did I say remarkable? I'm ruining this this uh, <laughs> yeah, perfect show. The amazing Randy, who's a magician and is, uh, who's a, an escape, escape artist, artist, and he s- s- dedicated his life to debunking all of these fakers, basically. Uri Geller, uh, Petey Popper, was that his name? The televangelist? Right, the televangelist. Mm-hmm. Uh and I, I, I liked the documentary. I thought it was really good. I could have watched 10 hours of just him debunking, of just like the the Petey Popper stuff or the Uri Geller. Like that's really, like give me a 10 episode long series of just the different people he's debunked and how he did it and what they were doing. That I was fascinating. I, I feel the same way. And the reaction that people had to his debunking. Mm -hmm. Do you think anything's changed since then in terms of, did it surprise you at all? Because now we, now we go on the internet and it's like, we're fighting a faceless giant and we can't, you can't land a good punch on Twitter or whatever, because the people just disappear back to their crazy corners or whatever. But in this, there's footage of him like on daytime talk shows and people are like, you you need to believe first, and, you, <laughs> right. and it's like, or, or calling him out, and it's like, this guy, all he's doing is presenting proof. Yeah, all he's doing is presenting right. proof. You know, so how can you? And did that surprise you at all? That you know, going back to like the eighties, there are still people who will just to your face be like, no, vaccines cause cause autism. It's yeah. not just on the internet. And I I don't know how much of that is. Staging, right? Because I mean, he is on a daytime talk show. I'm not to say that those opinions aren't actually based those on that people, woman's glasses <laughs> who was really laying into him on that one scene. She was not a plant. So before you were uncomfortable with um, what's his name, Bunker, whatever the director's name, Banker of uh, Toad Road is. Mm-hmm. Of his using the footage of James getting punched in the face. Were you at all, did you at all sympathize or were you uncomfortable with uh, Randy using these kids for four years to perpetrate this lie? Or were you impressed by that? That one went too far. That one went too far. Did it now, go too far just because of the length of time that it went on for? Or it went it went too far in this sense. There are ways to be right mm-hmm. that win people to your side, and there are ways to be right that alienate people. Mm-hmm. I have been on the alienation side probably mm-hmm. more than I've been on the winsome side. I'm right. definitely trying to change that. But there was a time where, you know, I could be I can I can be right about something and present it in such a way that people go, I I could agree with you and I hate the fact that I'm agreeing with you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what good does that do? Mm-hmm. And I think 
Amazing Randy had to ask himself that, especially with that one, which is, is the end goal, are you making your point in such a way that you're actually creating a space for people to stand against you? And he was. Mm -hmm. He was actually building the gallows with which he could hang himself Mm -hmm. with his own, you know, kind of debunking um, project. Yeah. And he did kind of hang himself on yeah. with that one. What do what, what, you think? I mean, I think it's impressive that they did this thing for four years. It's very impressive. And I wish I could have been. And again, that that reveal where they finally stand up. <laughs> there's like 18 people in the room. You know what I mean? Like that's the other thing. It's like yeah. <laughs> this is just an elite set right. of researchers who are basically getting exposed yeah. to the to the world of 18 reporters. Right. There's like one lady who's like, <gasps> like she's right. shocked. And, and I was like, and the point, and the point is not even that these researchers are bad people. It's just that their research method is flawed. Right. <laughs> right? It's not even like this really dubious enterprise. It just is like, yeah, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're doing it right. Exactly. <laughs> like we took four years just to prove that you were doing it wrong. <laughs> That's the big takeaway. The big takeaway is you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yes. Yeah. So no, that one went that one went too too far. Mm-hmm. And again, like you, I felt like I understand why they went where they went with their documentary. I don't know that we need to go there with the documentary. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't really like his partner was took on an identity. That's shocking. And then you hear his story. And it's the most banal story of like, yeah, yeah, I, w- I wasn't happy with my life in my country. A guy offered me, a, you know, a uh, identity and I took it. Mm-hmm. And then even at the end, the little interstitial, you know, commentary at the end, it's like, you know, Pedro Alv- Alvarez tried to get a passport to go attend his daughter's wedding. He missed the wedding. <laughs> like, it's kind of like done as like a joke, like. You know, the end yeah. result is is a but joke. But at the same so. time, if you're filming a documentary about Amazing Randy and it turns out that his partner has been living under a false identity for 25 years, how do you not put that into the documentary? Yeah. And and I guess it was weird, too, because you had the guy from Mythbusters who first brought it up in the very beginning where he's like, you know, it's just interesting that uh, Amazing Randy, who spent his life debunking, was... Living with a seeker of his own. And they like end and like, oh my, did he kill somebody or whatever? Yeah, there's a little bit of weird editing towards they, the beginning where it's like, wait a minute, what is, what are they referencing? What, what are they referencing? And, and then when you get to the end result, it's like, that's not, that's not what's interesting. What, what's interesting to me too is confronting Randy with, you have been engaged in, in a similar deception that you've accused other people can you talk more about that? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think he has a, a perspective that, you know, he's different than how the other people deceived people, mm-hmm. you know, because they were doing harm and he wasn't really doing harm. He mm-hmm. prevented a guy from getting a passport and going to his daughter's wedding, which is <laughs> pretty harmful. Um, but beyond that, it didn't seem like there were, didn't seem like that guy maybe cared as much because, you know, not, he wasn't really sentenced, and right, and it was basically a joke at the end. So, you didn't really have much there, but you could have dug into this idea of 
Mm-hmm. Randy, do you understand now why some people accept lies into their life? Mm-hmm. Because it's easier for them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they never really addressed that with them. They never really, uh, they hinted at the question, danced around it, but they never really got to it. And I, I wish that they would have actually done that. And I wish they would have trimmed his eyebrows. His eyebrows are insane. From the side view, I couldn't look insane. at it. I couldn't look at it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so an honest liar, highly recommended. My recommendation to you is a game that we have mentioned multiple times on the podcast before, Her Story. I want you to finally play it. Okay. That's my recommendation. Done. Uh, you've been listening to Everything is Interesting. My name is Justin Blizzard. I'm here with Keith Krepko. Everything we talked about on the show, you can find in our show notes. You can find a timestamp for all the stuff we talked about. I'll provide links for everything we talked about. And, uh... Hmm. (laughs) What a great... (laughs) And another great ending. Um, Yeah, so all that stuff you can find in the show notes. You can go to the website, eipodcast.com. We have a, a podcast that we're doing about True Detective. If you're watching that, Everything True Detective, there's only two... Probably terrible episodes left. (laughs) Um, And then we'll be done with that. And uh, I think that's it. Any parting words? (sighs) I'll let that... (laughs) The ending of my yawn. There you go. (laughs) All right. We'll uh, see you next week. 